0: This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It is Monday, March the 13th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's set the horns and go. A little too slow on a Monday. Sorry about that, gang. Making you speed things up here. (laughs) Coming up on the show today, lots of news emerging over the weekend. Including news editor Michelle McQuigg will shed some light to discuss the power of music therapy. And Amy Manty will share her thoughts on the Netflix film, We Have a Ghost. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But the show begins... With the top story of the day, and it's from the financial world. The fallout continues from the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. SVB was the 16th biggest bank in the United States. It's the first major American bank failure since the 2008 recession. The superintendent of Canada's financial institutions is temporarily seizing assets of its Canadian branch to protect the rights and interests of the branch's creditors. The UK Treasury and the Bank of England have facilitated the sale of Silicon Valley Bank UK to HSBC. Tom Rivers has more.
1: The moves come after the British government and the Bank of England stepped in quickly over the weekend to facilitate a private sale to HSBC. Treasury Secretary
2: Jeremy Hunt. It's a very important outcome. No taxpayer's money has been used, and I think it's a result of a lot of hard work. But I also think it shows that the UK has great resilience in its financial system.
1: HSBC stresses all services will continue to operate as usual at SVB UK following the deal, with all current staff remaining in place. Tom Rivers, ABC News, London. U.S.
0: regulators are still working on finding a buyer for SVB. However, the U.S. Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and the FDIC have announced that Silicon Valley Bank clients will be protected and access to all of their funds. Alex Stone has that element of the story.
1: This appears to be a big move to try to prevent panic in the banking industry and to prevent any other regional banks from going under with a run on them. The Federal Reserve, the Treasury, and the FDIC announcing not only are they making funds available to other banks to help them meet their needs, but they will make sure all deposits, even those over the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit, will be paid back to all Silicon Valley bank depositors on Monday. And a similar promise is being made to customers of Signature Bank in New York, which was shut down on Sunday. Alex Stone, ABC News.
0: And Jackie Quinn files this report on some of the broader ramifications on the financial industry.
3: Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's trying to reassure Americans there won't be a domino effect after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, like the meltdown in 2008. She says the American banking system is really safe and well capitalized. On NBC's Meet the Press, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez says this appears to be an isolated case, but the banking
4: industry bears watching. Should the regulators have been uh, on the ball to ensure that this bank could not have had this risk, and what else is out there? Former FDIC chairwoman Sheila Bear, also on the show, says the best
5: outcome is for a buyer to be found quickly. The problem is this was a rush, this was a liquidity failure. It was right. a bank run, so they didn't have time to prepare to market the bank. I'm
0: Jackie Quinn. Reporter Rebecca Jarvis offers some perspective on the factors that played into the SVB failure.
3: Everybody wanting their deposits back at the same time was a big part of the problem that SVB faced. And that scenario can play out elsewhere. And if it did, that would be highly problematic. You have a number of the regional banks, for example, First Republic Bank has sent out messages saying its capital and liquidity remain strong.
0: You heard Alex Stone mention that Signature Bank in New York closed its doors yesterday. Daria Albinger has more on that story.
5: Signature Bank was closed on Sunday by its New York State Chartering Authority, all 38 locations in several states, shutting their doors. The bank had a number of wealthy depositors, including former President Donald Trump, whose daughter Ivanka was a member of the Board of Directors from 2011 to 2013. Signature was also named in a 2016 lawsuit involving an alleged Manhattan Ponzi scheme. It's the second bank to shut its doors in less than a week after Silicon Valley Bank. The FDIC says Signature's depositors will have access to a all of their money starting on Monday. Daria Albinger, ABC News, New York.
0: So that was a pretty thorough look at the Silicon Valley Bank closure. We'll try to get a bit more perspective on that one as the week moves along, potentially bring in an external guest to uh, walk you through uh, the broader ramifications of that story. It's also going to relate to our daily polls, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, the... uh, Question was a little bit smaller in relevance. Do you make small talk in elevators with strangers? 24% of you said yes, and 76% of you said no. Our very own Bruce McLaren tweets in at Accessible Media. Depends on my mood, but when I do, I feel I start my day with a positive vibe and would like to believe I help start someone else's day the same way. I've been in an elevator with Bruce with strangers. He does make very good small talk, and he does have a very positive vibe. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, today's question with the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank in the United States. Do you have any concerns about the health of Canada's banking system? Yes or no? worth noting here before I jump into this conversation with Alex Smythe, there uh, are much stronger regulations in Canada around the banking sector about how much you can lend out and leverage your deposits versus the United States. That's one of the reasons that in 2008, the Canadian banking sector proved to be much, much, much more resilient than the majority of our allies. So, not trying to fearmonger this morning, trying to ask an honest question. Do you have concerns about the health of Canada's banking system? Not saying there's any kind of collapse happening, not encouraging you to run to the bank and withdraw all your money today, simply posing the question about your concerns about the health of Canada's banking system. So, Based on what I just mentioned, the regulations that are strongly in place in our financial sector, where we have a lot of major banks and not really small regional banks, a couple credit unions, but basically the banking sector is a lot of big boys in this country and not a lot of little folks. So my answer to this question is honestly no however anytime there's any kind of instability in the banking system you have to be a little bit concerned but i didn't want to give a middleman option here it's a binary it's yes or no so i do not currently have concerns about the health of canada's banking system but more broadly speaking when you start to see a little bit of instability around the world you have to be
1: at least a little bit cautious alex smyth what about you yeah dave you're stealing most of my thunder of what i was looking to uh to capture with it but uh I I will say no uh, for myself I'm I'm not concerned for the very reasons you laid out you know when we we saw the uh, 2008 great recession the Canadian banking system really held its own now there it it didn't go unscathed there were big hits that it took as part of that recession but we didn't see the collapse that we saw in the US because of our strong regulations. So, I think based on that it, it it gives me much more confidence in the Canadian banking system and how we regulate our banks as you mentioned opposed to those in the US. Now that said, we we're, we're not uh you know protected from exposure volatility having real impacts on our savings. That can still happen, but to see a full collapse of banks, I think would be very, very different. And I don't foresee that in the Canadian system as it stands now. But, you know, as uh, it was mentioned, it's like anyone can really go in and withdraw their their money. It's just how are the banks set up to uh, really structure themselves and support themselves and protect themselves when there is a run on their specific bank, whatever the reason may be.
0: Right, and there's a lot of protections in place. FDIC in the United States, we have our own deposit insurances in Canada as well, uh, up to a certain amount. As the FDIC and the Federal Treasury said yesterday, uh, Mm -hmm. all of the assets under deposit and SVB will be protected for people within the bank. It's not just creditors who are going to be protected. So they're going above and beyond to try and reassure people. However, however, again, I'm not trying to fear-monger this morning. I want to be super, super a candid and direct about this, just trying to have a discussion about this, not trying to fear monger. In 2008, there were a lot of people at the Treasury and in the sector who said, no, 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 Lehman Brothers is just a blip. No, 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 AIG is just a blip. They were not just a blip, right? Like, this shouldn't be underplayed. That's the reason why I'm leading the show with the Silicon Valley bank story, because it is big news. When the 16th biggest bank, in the United States fails, that is a story. It matters. Now, there's other context involved here that wasn't even covered in the news stories that I played. For example, the fact that it was one of the major banks and credit unions of the tech sector, which has been getting brutalized in the last eight months because interest rates went up and none of these tech companies have actually figured out how to make money with their billion dollar and trillion dollar valuations. So that's relevant here as well, that a lot of companies went through their own cash crunch and a bank that took out a bunch of other loans or made a bunch of other investments, which they're really should, we should be encouraging banks to stop making external investments. Hello, investment banking in the U.S. Did we learn nothing from 2008? So when, when, when I tell you this story, I tell it to you because it's relevant, because it matters. And there are concerns now. Once again, it seems like regulation in the U.S. has completely failed its own system. And maybe that's the story here. Fifteen years later, that seems as though absolutely zero lessons were learned about the Great Recession. But coming back to Canada and talking about the health of our own banking system, one of the policies that's been put in place in the last decade or so was the financial means stress test, particularly with the possibility of a spike in interest rates when it comes to getting out mortgages. I believe it's that you had to be approved for 2% higher than your actual approved rate uh, to be told whether or not you could afford a home that you were buying. And we saw the rapid spike in home prices over the course of the last, well, <laughs> it's been two decades, but really let's let's use the short term of the pandemic in conjunction with a massive rise in the key interest rate, which has basically met that 2% threshold. So I do actually wonder once you've hit that mark as well in the last couple of months with the interest rate increase, what that means for the overall health and lending of these Canadian banks, how much more the Bank of Canada could raise its key interest rates and potentially not completely tank the real estate market. So there's a lot of moving pieces going on here, Alex. I don't mean to throw all of this context out here as kind of a way to like spin the tops or lay out confusion, but it it, it is all relevant. It all matters as part of the broader picture here. As you say, we are not immune. The Canadian banking system and financial system is not immune to what happens
1: elsewhere in the globe, no matter what our regulations are. Yeah, but I I think, you know, you laid it out beautifully. The context is all very important and critical, and these are conversations worth having, because I, I can't remember whether this was the second time or the second largest bank to ever close it was one second of something it's and it's I, the, I it's, the,
0: it's the second largest bank failure yeah. in American banking history it's the fir- exactly. it was the first since the great Recession although whenever they start doing that second biggest I'll always tell you inflation matters so a bank that failed in 1929 had less uh bank had less assets under management uh, than svb but I think if you thought about it proportionally a lot of the banks that failed in t- in 1929 would have been proportionally bigger but as a matter of volume, yes, SVB was the second biggest American bank failure ever.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I it's definitely newsworthy. And and I think these are all cautionary tales. It's like, OK, well, we, we kind of get lulled into this false sense. It's like, OK, well, it's business as usual. We learned our lesson. We moved on. It's like this is a reminder. It's like, oh, no, we, we always need to be paying attention to what our banking is, institutions are doing and the impact that you know when a catastrophic failure like this happens the impact on people is huge in our population so we need to remain vigilant re- continue to assess and reevaluate how are our regulations here are we making sure that we are adapting to the ever changing world to the new investment strategies the new uh like kind of areas and and industries and funding like you know there was a conversation that, uh the last few years about cryptocurrency and and really the the volatility around that mm-hmm. okay, well, are we are we keeping up to date with modern trends mm-hmm. and what's going on in the world around us especially when it comes to money because. Yeah, money rolls all at the end well, of the day,
0: Well, Alex. That that's part of this too. Don't forget, SVB had a lot of stake in various crypto companies that were part of Silicon Valley. So, so again, this is all relevant. The collapse of crypto meant a lot of those crypto companies may have been trying to pull actual assets out of the bank, which could have led to this as well. Let alone the uh, the collapsing bond market in terms of Treasury bonds. There, there, there's there's so much in terms of like tech, like like economical minutiae that plays into this. But you're right to identify crypto as well as a modern trend. That absolutely impacted this story and why a, why a bank based in the tech sector was going to run into this. Alex, we've run into the issue that we're out of time talking about this. And I hopefully have not sent people sprinting to their uh, to their bank this morning. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. one 509 4545 is where you call. If you want to leave a voicemail, one 509 4545 is the phone number. And feedback at AM. AMI.ca is the email address, feedback at AMI.ca. Let's go back to Alex, who has the national weather updates.
1: Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland today, where it's cloudy with a chance of snow this morning, and then it'll be a mix of sun and clouds later. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The highest one degree feeling like minus nine. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's mainly sunny today. The high is six degrees, but with the wind chill, it's making it feel like minus 10. On to Montreal, Quebec, where it's cloudy, with a chance of rain or snow today, the high is three degrees, but feeling like minus seven with that wind chill. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's periods of snow, with up to four centimeters expected to fall today. The high is two degrees, feeling like minus five. In Toronto, Ontario, it's snow off and on today. The high is 2 degrees, and the windchill makes it feel like minus 3, so we're right around that freezing point today. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's sunny, and the high is minus 3, but with that windchill makes it feel like minus 20 this morning. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's sunny as well, but it's becoming a mix of sun and clouds later in the afternoon. The high is minus 7, but with that windchill, it's more like minus 24. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's sunny as well, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later, but the high is minus four today. But again, it's feeling cooler with that wind chill at minus 22. In Calgary, Alberta, there's clouds clearing out this morning. The high is eight degrees, but with that wind chill, it's more like minus 19 in the morning. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. The minus five is the high, minus 20. With that wind chill. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's sunny today, but quite cold. It's a high of minus 14, but with that wind chill, that's more like minus 36. So there are, is a risk for frostbite out there. To Vancouver, BC, there's rain this morning, but then it's going to be ending and turning into a mix of sun and clouds later. And the high is going to be seven degrees today. And then finally in Victoria, BC, there's rain ending in the morning. And then it will be clearing up in the afternoon, and the high is going to be 9 degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex.
0: Coming up next, Flair Airlines had a few of their planes seized over the weekend. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig will shed some light on that story. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Flair Airlines had several of their planes seized over the weekend. Canadian Press Weekend News editor Michelle McQuig is here to offer up a bit more information on that story. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Dave. So, Michelle, how many planes got seized?
5: Well, there were four of them, and it all came out of the blue. On Saturday afternoon, a statement came out saying that Flair had had... These four aircraft seized that day uh, in three different locations in Toronto and Edmonton and in Waterloo, Ontario, and that was about all the information we had. We knew we found out passengers were affected, uh, but there was not a lot of explanation given beyond the fact that this was a commercial dispute, and it uh, transpired as we found out it was with the, the leasing company with that, with, uh, that owns these aircraft.
0: Michelle, you mentioned there certainly was some impact on customers. What was the extent of the impact? <laughs>
5: Uh, it, it could have been worse, I suppose, in that, the, you know, a number of customers found themselves with their flights abruptly cancelled. Flair said that it did have a few spare aircraft that it was able to deploy to mitigate some of that and, and get passengers moving again. But still, it was a really abrupt cancellation. Um, and, and we, we don't quite know exactly how this is fully going to pan out. Flair has a lot of expansion aspirations. They're trying to uh, ramp themselves up to be one of the, the, I think they're aiming to be the third biggest airline in Canada. Even by the end of this year, so this is a bit of a shock in that in that sense. And we don't—I don't know yet if they have the capacity to fully mitigate this. They say they do, and they're willing to compensate passengers, either by getting them onto other flare flights or compensating them if they make their own different travel arrangements if they do it in the next seven days. But uh, yeah, quite a strange situation on if the ground for do, those if passengers. If they
0: do it in the next seven days, hi, I'm stranded at Edmonton. I need to make I know I to go somewhere in seven it's, days. It's, the whole thing is really strange.
5: Uh, the, the airline itself is, is describing this as a very unusual action by the leasing company to, to seize those aircraft, and uh, we're still trying to get some answers as to what exactly the situation was there. Our, uh, our... stay tuned to our transport reporter Chris
0: Reynolds. He's all over the story mm-hmm. today. hmm uh, Much like the uh, Silicon Valley Bank story that I had in the first segment, this is one that's going to develop as the uh, week it moves certainly along. is. Th- th- this is the, you know this is one of the challenges to think about the role that you have on the weekend, Michelle. Something goes haywire maybe you get to talk to one media relations person or a reporter gets to chat to one media relations person but a lot of people are up at the cottage or they're away they're they're not, they're not picking up the phone on the weekend to talk about stuff like this
5: do not even start with me on this that is absolutely the weekend reality. Uh, we were, in fact, we were lucky to get as much as info as we got out of Flair. We, we did reach out to the leasing company, and they were not responsive on the weekends, which, which is fair. People are trying to to switch off a little bit, but uh, you're right; it does make news gathering a little more
0: difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's one that'll develop this today and throughout the rest of the week. No absolutely, doubt about
5: it. yeah, uh, and our team's all over it. So
0: uh, stay tuned, Michelle. A, a bit of a different story here, but it jumped off the page to me. There's some concerns being raised about government approval of genetically modified organisms notice mm-hmm. how, how slowly I said that because I think you have to zoom a little bit out on this one what's an issue here
5: yeah so again I, I need to highlight the work of my colleague Nia Rapson on this one she's done a, g- a good job with this and now always covers environmental issues um, the government is in the process of trying to update the Canadian environment and Inf- Canadian Environmental Protection Act I should take a page from your book Dave and slow down for a sec. <laughs> Um, usually known as SEPA, they're in the middle of trying to to expand that. That act is supposed to govern the approval of genetically modified and genetically engineered organisms. but currently, the, the current round of amendments, first of all, the Act has not been updated. It's only like 22 years. Uh, a number of amendments Ooh, were proposed. A, yeah. a lot
0: has changed in 22 years.
5: Yeah, just just just, just a few things. Yeah. And the consultation process is, looks like it's been going on for quite some time, too. And of course, you know, COVID delays would account for some of this. But we're looking at it's a year's worth of, of consultations and, and efforts to amend this Act that have been taking place. Um, the current legislation doesn't actually do much to talk about amending things to address genetically engineered or modified organisms and again that's something that's, that's a field that's evolved in leaps and bounds over the past 22 years uh, the senate tried to introduce some amendments to address that subject and those amendments have currently been stripped out so there isn't a lot of action currently uh, in the efforts to update this legislation that address that issue and that's a bit of an issue because this is happening already in mm-hmm. fact uh Stephen Guilbeau, the environment minister Could potentially approve an application for a genetically engineered fruit fly as early as this week. So uh, there are immediate examples before us and not a whole lot of regulation to to help control that situation. Yes,
0: yeah, so you mentioned the genetically modified fruit flies, and I'm not quite sure why we're trying to make more fruit flies. I feel like in life we need less fruit flies, but again, these are <laughs> things that are me. Uh, there was another example that was shared in one of these stories about some uh, essentially fluorescent fish that mm-hmm. were bred that were supposed to be infertile, and much like in Jurassic Park, life found a way. They got pulled sure into some local streams and Started reproducing.
5: It's worth noting that's not in Canada. This is in Brazil, where this happened. Irrelevant. Fish. Irrelevant. <laughs> you're you're right That that people are, are pointing to Brazil as a cautionary tale for us and saying, "Okay, yes, these specific fish that are breeding in Brazil would not thrive here because of the what climate and water conditions." But the point is that it could happen, and these are exactly the kinds of scenarios that. Advocates are asking for regulations to try and control to limit that. Jura- You're saying environment, Jurassic, the environment's already. A-
0: Park in Jurassic Park, they said the dinosaurs were being bred as all females, so they couldn't reproduce. And then what happened? <laughs> they started laying raptor eggs everywhere.
5: When in doubt, consult Jurassic Park for your science.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Michelle, no, I but, cut you off in the middle of an important point.
5: No, no, it's cool. Um, I was just saying that, you know, the advocate's position. There, there's a there's a quote in, in Mia's story to the effect that the environment's already on the ropes. They don't. It doesn't need additional uh, harm or, from from species going awry and running amok.
0: Yeah, yeah, introducing new species. I mean, we don't have to look too much further than our friends in Florida who had a couple pythons dumped in their swamps. And now pythons are running amok all over Florida to the point that one US politician said, let's unleash some king cobras to deal with our python problem. Which, Next, it's uh, going to
5: be whacking day from the Simpsons. Uh, what is it, going it, on la- It
0: literally is whacking day from the Simpsons. Oh my God, okay. Like we li- We're literally living the Simpsons here. This is what's going on here 30 years <sighs> after those episodes aired. Uh, Michelle, <laughs> one last story here uh finally something on the industry navel gazing side of things Mm. uh there have been some more developments in the saga that is the federal online news act what's the latest from the big tech perspective
5: The latest on that one is a a threat effectively from Meta, which of course is the parent company for Facebook and Instagram. Uh, They put out a statement over the weekend saying that if the Online News Act, uh, which you might have heard referred to as Bill C-18, goes through in its current form, uh, Meta will just turn off the tap on news content for Instagram and Facebook and Canadians will no longer be able to access news on those platforms. Uh, That's Really, that—that's—that's that's that's it. <laughs> it. It's pretty simple. There's not a lot of nuance to it. They're just saying that the—they that they, their position is that the act requires them to pay for content that they don't actually post, and that they say that this is not a f- sustainable business model. That no business can function that way, and they're not prepared to do it. Uh, the Canadian government, of course, is reacting in a similar way to what they did when Google uh, put its news filtering test in play for a few weeks. they're saying that they're they're calling this an intimidation tactic and they're saying that Canadians won't stand for it the government won't stand for it and, and they're they're accusing Facebook of being obstructionist and uncooperative mm-hmm. in this whole process. so uh, remains to be seen what happens but it's worth noting that this kind of situation played out in Australia mm-hmm. since, uh, before uh, Australia a number of countries are proposing similar legislation to C18. Um, Australia did that a couple years ago uh meta made a similar threat about news content and they did walk it back after australia made a, a bit of a change not necessarily a huge one but they changed an arbitration mechanism in that bill and uh meta walked back their threat but they've they've made it before and i suspect this uh we're in for a bit of a standoff here
0: uh, as as is the way that it goes hey michelle thank you for this have a great week uh, i unfortunately will not talk to you on friday for the news panel i'll be in calgary doing some other ami business so oh. I'll talk, and i won't even talk to you next monday mike ross will be in the chair so oh, i'll wow. talk i'll talk to you in like a week and a half
5: well, have a great time and uh, safe travels.
0: Thank you very much. That's Michelle McQuigg, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, it's Music Therapy Awareness Month. Nick Smith stops by to discuss the power of music therapy. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute.
4: Last week ended on a down note for North America's stock markets following a shock to the financial sector with a seizure of assets from Silicon Valley Bank. Toronto's S&P TSX lost 312 points, closing at 19,775. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 345 points to 31,910, while the Nasdaq fell 199 points to 11,139. Overseas this week has started on a mixed note with Japan's Nikkei sliding 311 points into the red at 27,833, and while shares also fell in Sydney and sold, benchmarks rose in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Experts this morning say Russia has weathered sweeping Western economic sanctions better than many expected, but tougher times could be coming for the Kremlin as new sanctions finally target its biggest maker, oil exports. And the Looney is trading this morning at 72.73 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate.
0: Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Music Therapy Awareness Month in Canada. The practice is not new, but the impact is significant on people. Nick Smith is a certified music therapist with Alto Music Therapy in Moncton, New Brunswick. Hey, Nick, thank you for making time this morning. Great to chat with you.
2: Yeah, nice chatting with you too, Dave. Nick, a bit of
0: context here. What are some examples of music therapy and how it works?
2: Uh, well, we use music therapy in, like, uh, in hospitals and in educational settings and private practice as well across many uh, different clients, uh, client populations as well. So perinatally in the womb, for example, or in the NICU and all the way to end of life and uh, legacy creation, for example, with uh, palliative care.
0: How, how does it end up impacting patients? What are the ways that it impacts
2: patients? Uh, Well, it it can work on many different domains like social domain, communication domain, um, academic, emotional domains as well. Um, So it can have a really big impact on quality of life or on very specific needs that are targeted for each client as well. So like if a a client has a specific motor or a gait problem, we can use music therapy to, uh, to address and work on those goals.
0: Yeah. This is something that goes well beyond, Oh, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to pop on my favorite song. This is about, this is about helping people with skills, whether it be in rehabilitation or in the learning process, right?
2: Yeah. we have development, developmental approaches. Uh, We also have specific protocols for like working in the hospitals. Like I said, on gait training, for example, Um, it can also be for emotional things like having a bad day as well. Um, And it can really be applied and modified for many different situations.
0: What about areas like retention? I know there was some studies out of uh, Kingston, Ontario. Oh my gosh, it must have been like almost 15 years ago now about uh, retention for people after strokes and rehabilitation, about utilizing music as a way to uh, do some
2: cognitive repair. Yeah, so there's um, we have protocols, like I said, around hospital um, use of music therapy in hospitals, like a neurologic. Music therapy would be one that comes to mind. Uh, it's really made for like the using music therapy on neurologic in, um, units in the hospitals, and also ideally using music therapy to help clients transition from inpatient to outpatient to community and back into the home, ideally um, with less pharmaceutical use of drugs as well. Using music to alleviate pain, for example, create new social bonds, and to create new um, uh, neurological connections as well. Nick, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different practical
0: applications that music therapy can be used for. But maybe for the sake of making this tangible or putting this into practical terms, what would a session look like for for, for someone? Uh, like you can you can pick whatever 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 uh, type of session you want, but what what would a session look like?
2: Sure, um, I'll talk to you about my experience. I'm uh, I work mostly with children. Um, in neurodevelopment and uh, neurodiversity as well, so I use developmental approach, and we always use a hello song and a goodbye song at the end, so that really frames what we're doing. We have that song at the beginning that tells the client, hey, we're here, I'm here for you, I'm ready to listen, ready to have fun because it's music uh, and it's developmental as well. And then all the way at the end, we have the goodbye song, which is usually a little slower and helps transition the client into the rest of the day. In the middle, I'll create a treatment plan for each client that's based off assessments, based off a of client wishes, parents and caregivers, what they want, what other professionals want. Uh, and I use that to inform my selection of interventions. Usually it'll be something uh, that helps get the client moving, something that gets them into music very quickly and v- like for longer periods of time. We also have games that are academic as well as musical at the same time. So uh, one thing that I can think of is an intervention called pass the instrument. We play a song that the client really likes on a speaker. We have a bag of small percussion instruments, and they get to choose the instruments that they want to play. Whenever I say pass, they have to grab a new instrument. They give me their instrument, and they have to get they have a new instrument to play with. Sometimes mm. we'll switch it around too. Sometimes it's their turn to say pass. Um, if it's a bigger group, we have more people playing. We don't use pre-recorded music. We have somebody playing like a bongo or something. So that's just one intervention that we that I use, and that would work on like social goals, communication goals, uh, academic goals, musical as well, motor goals too.
0: What are some of the biggest misconceptions that exist around music therapy?
2: Um, I think the biggest one is that we're just having fun or that it's just recreation or it's not scientific. And that's not the case uh, at all. We, what we do is we have a, a lot of training that goes around becoming a music therapist, um, 1200 hours of training specifically, plus a, a, a degree. Uh, so it's, it's more than just having fun. Like I said earlier, like, or like I, I showed in my, my treatment plan, like it's, it's very based on treatment planning, based on other people's reports, and it's based on the, the literature as well. So that's one thing is like it's we're just having fun we're just like jamming or whatever like that's sometimes it's the case but it's it's always with a purpose and with a reason. Uh something else that kind of that's a big misconception is that um, one style of music is maybe more is better like classical music was really is thought like the Mozart effect like that's kind of not true you know every kind of music is um applicable and has a can have a therapeutic um, impact on a client and their lives if it's used properly, if it's well done and well designed. So even like metal, we use like our heavy, heavy styles of music. We do use those in music therapy when it's client appropriate. Um, it's not like like I said, it's not the Mozart effect for everybody. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> And clients don't need to be musical either. Like we don't, uh, clients don't need to be uh, even aware. We can work with clients who are in a coma, who are, who, where we can work on like body rhythms, bio rhythms on like skin conductance, conductance as well to see like heart rate as well. So uh, people don't need to be trained formally. They don't need to have like a, to know how to play an instrument or anything like that. We can work with really all levels of musical um, skill.
0: Nick, some of this may have come up within the misconceptions, but as mentioned off the top of the segment, it is Music Therapy Awareness (laughs) Month. What do you think some of the most important messages about music therapy uh, should be taken away by the public this month?
2: Um, I think that uh, the public should know more about what music therapy is and how it can help everybody across the lifespan, across skill levels. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done there from uh, the CAMT um and from everybody every music therapist here um i think we're we're fun like i said earlier but we're also uh, evidence based we're non-pharmaceutical so we have lower levels of um of uh we're non-pharmaceutical so it's it's better for your body uh it's a natural it's a holistic approach as well it's really um it's really beneficial in a holistic sense so it helps like every uh aspect of functioning
0: Nick, it's something that I know the the academic research has really been growing for the better part of 20 years now. And it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable, some of the outcomes. So if people want to learn a little bit more, maybe even specifically about some of the work that you're doing as a certified music therapist in Moncton at Alto Music Therapy, where should they go to learn more?
2: Uh, well, the main place to go would be uh, the Canadian Association of Music Therapists website, and that's musictherapy.ca. And they have a great resource in French and in English that that goes through all like everything that I talked about. Plus, they also have um, a tab for this month for uh, Music Therapy Awareness Month where you can learn more there. You can keep up to date with what music therapists are doing across the country through the website. And the CMT socials are a really great place to keep up with all of that as well. Um, my website is altomusictherapy.ca, um, and like I said, I work more in the southeastern part of New Brunswick. Um, so, for a more national approach, would be I would suggest uh, for people to go to the Canadian Association of Music Therapists website. There's also provincial websites or multi-provincial websites out there.
0: Nick, thank you for this. Thank you for your time today, and thank you for all the work that you and your colleagues are doing. It's very interesting and it's and it's very effective. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. That's Nick Smith, a certified music therapist with Alto Music Therapy based in Moncton, New Brunswick. Coming up after the break, Amy Amante will share her thoughts on the Netflix film, We Have a Ghost. But first, some changes are coming to your experience on Spotify. Mike Debuski has details in Tech Trends.
1: At its annual Stream On event, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek pulling the wraps off a redesigned homepage. We are excited
2: to introduce an entirely new... An updated Spotify experience.
1: David Pierce, editor-at-large of The Verge, says the update incorporates things like clips from music videos, even video podcasts. You'll now see autoplaying video for some of the shows, and it'll try to show you a preview of just the most interesting bit of the podcast. That's a far cry from the audio spaces Spotify usually plays in, which Pierce says the company has struggled to monetize. I want to stream all of the music on the Earth. is probably a bigger market than almost anything else I can think of. But there's no money in it for anybody. He says Spotify hopes videos keep users on the app longer because ultimately. An audio ad is one thing, but if they can have visual ads, that's another thing. That's another way for them to make money. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike DeBusky, ABC News.
0: Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI. I will have some sound clips from the Oscars for you in about uh, 10 minutes or so. But before we get to that entertainment story, it's time for a movie review. Amy Amanti is here with a film review of the Netflix movie, We Have a Ghost. Hey, good morning, Amy.
3: Good morning, Dave.
0: So, Amy, this Netflix movie is one of these horror comedies, but what's it about?
3: Well, uh picture a house, Dave. Okay. One year I can do after. That. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of like the Amityville horror looking house. It's, <laughs> it's an old decrepit looking house, as every horror movie starts off with, right? <laughs> and we are at this house one year after the previous owners fled in terror. Um, so then the Presley's move into this house without knowledge of this haunting. And we're saying to the realtor, wow, this this house is priced really well. And of course nothing, nothing was told to them. And on the first night, Kevin, the 16-year-old, who's the youngest in the family, investigates a sound that he hears above him from his bedroom. So he goes up to the attic and, you know, as a 16-year-old would, pulls out his smartphone and starts using the camera and looking around. And what happens is a ghost appears, but he captures it on his camera. So... Kevin's family finds out about this and all of a sudden this video of this ghost goes viral so the whole world knows about Ernest the ghost and um, uh, at the same time Kevin and his next door neighbor who there may or may not be a love connection with is uh, trying to figure out because Ernest doesn't even know how he passed away so they're going on this quest to figure out what was the cause of his passing maybe some connection to past relatives. Um, And at the same time, now that he's viral, Ernest is viral, the CIA is tracking his every move.
0: Oh, okay, the CIA is getting involved. A little bit of government conspiracy. Now we're talking my language in a movie. (laughs) Uh, Amy, sometimes when we're talking about a movie like this, it might be smaller actors who make up the cast. So who are the stars of this particular film?
3: Well, you know, I, uh, I was using my small amount of partial and I was thinking to myself, I somehow know this face what was interesting to me is the, the way the ghost is filmed is in really good contrast because they do this kind of filtering technique and i was like oh, there's something about that face that maybe I recognize, but I couldn't place it. So it wasn't until I started to do my, uh, my research that I realized it was David Harbour, uh, which was a name that I didn't really know, but folks may remember David Harbour from Stranger Things, if you watched Stranger Things. So David Harbour uh, played Jim Hopper, who was uh, the police, the sheriff um, in Stranger Things, the love interest of, uh, of, our, of our mom. Um, so he was in this particular role. Now this role was a very interesting role for him because it's a non-speaking role. So we'll talk about a bit about that in the, in the next next bit here. Dave um, Jahai Winston plays our Kevin, who's a, a young actor and uh, was really really excellent in this. And Isabella Russo uh, plays Joy, who's the next door neighbor. And there may or may not be there may or may not be a cameo from a celebrity um, psychologist, Dr. Phil.
2: okay
0: so 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 my theory on this is right this is a lot of sort of smaller or or lesser known actors who make up this cast
3: yeah yeah I I you know I was doing some research on our on our on our young actors and I couldn't really find them in anything that was notable uh, that we would recognize them from so the only one that I obviously discovered was was uh was David Harbour
1: Amy beyond
0: being executive producer Jeff Manaugh is involved in this going beyond sort of saying i put together a little bit of cash for y'all how else was the ep involved in this film
3: well he's also the writer of a short the short story that this film was based on um which so it's great there's uh, you know we're seeing a lot of content that is based on short stories or novels these days it seems to be kind of the go-to thing to build a, a screenplay out of um, so it was lovely to see that 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 his that he was working in the executive producer role, but he also had a lot of input in terms of casting, um, which sometimes executive producers do and sometimes they don't. But typically, as far as I understand, they don't really have that much input. In fact, many of them are actually actors in the film that need uh, uh, a boost in in pay, so they get an extra title kind of thing. Um, so uh, with with uh, with Harbor in particular, with David Harbor, um, they were sitting back, and, and uh, Jeff was like, oh, "I I want this, I want this actor, I want this actor, I want this actor so bad." And so they interviewed um, David Harbor, and <laughs> David said, "It's a non-speaking role. I'm terrified. I'm terrified of a non-speaking role." And and to just you know shed a little bit of light on that, Dave, non-speaking roles are the hardest roles. Everybody says, "Oh, it's easy to be a non-speaking actor." It's the hardest thing for an actor to do because you can't use tone of voice, inflection, uh, ooh, punctuation ooh. or anything to make your choices. We have to be able to, we, I say we, the global we, those of us who can see, right, and do see. Um, you have to be able to see somebody's uh, facial expressions and body language because that's all they have to interpret story to you. Um, so then David Harbour was was uh, 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 noted as saying, that he was incredibly scared and incredibly terrified to take on this role. But that meant that Jeff thought, okay, that means that he's going to be vulnerable, but Mm -hmm. also is intrigued and excited about the role. So he thought that was a good match.
0: A lot of actors come from diverse backgrounds, Amy, but more and more it's possible for actors to break in without ever having to have been a stage actor. And I wonder how much that may influence somebody wanting to be in a non speaking role if they don't have an extensive stage experience. Because on stage, you have to be big and broad and bold, whereas maybe on screen, you can play it a little more subtle.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're very, you know, as somebody who's studied both film acting and, and theater acting, they are so, so opposite of each other because you're right. you know you knew in, in stage acting, you know traditionally, you need the person at the back of the room to hear you and to see you. so your body movements, your body language is big and bold, your voice is loud and projecting. In film, kind of the smaller you are, the the better. And that doesn't mean that you uh, that you that you uh, that you're acting less, right? Acting is about making choices. You know, what is the character feeling? What is the character doing? What is the choice that the character is making? And sometimes people are like, I don't understand what it means by making choices. It's right in the dialogue. But you can interpret dialogue in many different ways. Uh, and the choice that you say in this moment might reflect something that's coming, you know, an hour later in the film, for example, and making uh, the choice an hour earlier sets that up. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's really about analyzing the script and making making choices. But for actors that are are doing screen stuff, especially with 4K screens and all sorts of like you can see every you know, pore that's on a person's face, these, <laughs> every how every wrinkle moves on their face, right? Yeah. At least that's what I'm told. Um, it, that is uh, both intimidating, but it, it also is a is a very nuanced way for actors, and they are becoming much more. Uh, if you look at films today, as opposed to films 30 years ago, where they still had sort of this root of theater in them, it's, there's a lot more subtlety. There's a lot more. If I, you know, the less I do it, the act- actually the more impactful it is
0: amy let's go back to the genre side of this sure. again in it, for me in this script this was presented as a horror comedy yeah. based on the way you described the story i can see where maybe there's some horror conventions but maybe it's mm-hmm. not a horror movie but rather a ghost movie a supernatural movie with some comedy elements so what did you make of the genre bending or combining that was going on here
3: We've talked a lot a bit, a lot about like genre bending, right? There's a lot, all these new genres that are coming out and I feel like, okay, you know, it's obviously it's a marketing ploy, you know, anytime, you know, we don't just have our dramas and our comedies and our sci-fis anymore. Now we have horror comedy hybrids. Um, I would say that when I first started this film, again, I I go into most of the films that I watch with no real... Background about them because I want to kind of be surprised, and then I do my research afterwards. So, you know, I turned it on, and I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a creepy horror movie. This is going to be creepy." Um, and it's not until we see Ernest the ghost for the first time, um, and he does this kind of woo thing. That first woo is is scary, uh, and then you know, our main character Kevin bursts into laughter. And all of a sudden, the, the convention is totally turned into a, into a comedy. Mm-hmm. So the first little chunk of it is horror, and then it's really comedy throughout the whole way. And this ghost um divide um uh it, it breaks all the conventions of of ghosts, right? Like um this ghost can't speak. So in many mo- movies that we see, ghosts do speak. Um, this, this ghost can leave the premises in many films and movies. They can't leave the premises. So he goes on a road trip with this, with this teenager and his neighbor, right? So, um, there are lots of things this ghost can touch. Um, so there's a lot of things that this ghost can do that, that, that the, the conventional ghost that we see in typical films. But I think that's part of the comedy of it, Dave, is that we don't expect this ghost to be able to do some of these things. Yeah. Um, And then all of a sudden you're like hey that's new it's like it's like uh seeing a vampire that uh that likes to eat garlic and you're like oh that's not (laughs) what i knew of any vampire before
0: yeah so it's a little subversive it plays with the form which is which is fine which is cool Uh, how was the audio description
3: the audio description I thought was excellent. Uh, they did a really great job with the diversity description. So the Presley family is is an African American family. Um, so they were they were um, considering uh, all of the diversity pieces in place without it being a default of white versus black, which we often see in films. If you're not white, you are uh, you are then outed as a different race, um, and white people are just never told that we're white because it's the default, right? Um, so you hear me harp about that a lot. So I thought that the the diversity balance. Here was really excellent and then of course you know right at the beginning when we have this creepy old house there's some really beautiful moments in here and i never expect any movie to go into real depth about what like the sets and the costumes look like in case unless it's important to the film. And so in this one, you know, they talk about the antique stained glass windows in this, in this old sort of mansion. And they talk about the ornate details of the walls and they talk about the, uh, the vintage and worn looking wallpaper. And so that sort of set me up for this convention of what this house feels like um which i which i thought really really added to my experience.
0: Mm. Amy, looking at some ratings here. The mm-hmm. critics on Rotten Tomatoes gave this 43%, the audience mm-hmm. score was 65%. So to me that says the critics kind of didn't like this and the audience sort of liked this. So it implies a certain disparity, but I don't care what the great unwashed think. I don't care what the film critics mm-hmm. think. I care what Amy Manti thinks. How do you rate the film?
3: the audience is right. Um, I enjoyed this film. Again, it's cheesy, it's hokey, it's got, but it's got something for everybody. And at its heart of this story, right at its center of this film, is the story of a broken family. So this family of four that moves into this house, they're broken in a lot of ways. And so how does this family come together? Well, they come together to rally around this story of Ernest. Um, and that brings the family back together. So not only is it, you know, got some some laughter and some absurdity and some horror and all of those things. There's literally something for everybody in this movie because there's connection, there's a bit of a love story, um, there's a bit of a of a like a, a mystery to solve. So there's there's a lot of sort of um, boxes to be ticked in terms of being able to watch this with many people in a space. For them to all say oh yeah i kind of really liked that or that was really sweet or that kind of scared the poop out of me or whatever right yeah yeah. there's something something in there for everybody and i so i think that that the critics are not giving this enough credit because sometimes we need movies that just allow us to like sit back and have a good laugh we don't always need to be intensively thinking and asking questions
0: no we no we need to pull a dave brown and watch all quiet on the western front on saturday nights and feel horrible about it for like 48 hours afterwards because it was amazing but trench warfare for two hours is uh brutal to watch and takes a toll on your soul
3: that's right yep that's right sometimes you just want to turn on something that you don't have to overthink (laughs)
0: like uh how i chased it with the water boy the adam sandler movie to try and Ah! uh, cleanse my palate amy thank you for this (laughs)
3: You are welcome, Dave.
0: <laughs> That's Amy Amanti, film reviewer in Vancouver, BC, with a review of the Netflix movie We Have a Ghost. No need to play the sounder here, guys, but I want to stay in the world of entertainment. Everything, everywhere, all at once picked up a whole mess of Oscars last night. Of note, the movie took in Best Picture, Best Actress, and both Best Supporting Ac- Acting Oscars. It was also a good night for Canadian film. Sarah Pauly's movie, Women Talking, won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's a clip of Polly accepting the award.
5: We have the most incredible cast and the most incredible crew, some of whom are here tonight. Please stand up if you're there or if you're in the nosebleeds. And everybody at home who worked on this film. (laughs) Oh, my God. I accept this on all of our behalf. Thank you. Thank
0: you. And Canadian-American actor Brendan Fraser won the Oscar for Best Actor for his performance in The Whale. Fraser had a lot of thanks to give in his acceptance speech.
4: I just want to say thank you for this acknowledgement
0: because it couldn't be done without my cast.
4: It's it's been like it's been like I've been on a diving expedition on the bottom of the ocean and the air on the line to the surface is on a launch being watched over
0: by some people in my life like my sons Holden and Leland and Griffin. I love you Griffey. My manager Joanne Colonna Jennifer Plant, and my best first mate, Jeannie. And Toronto filmmaker Daniel Roher won the award for best documentary, his film about Russian political leader Alexei Navalny. Roher had a lot to say about geopolitics in his speech. And there's one person who couldn't be with us here tonight.
2: Alexei Navalny, the leader of the Russian opposition, (laughs) remains in solitary confinement for what he calls... I
0: want
1: to make sure we get his words exactly right. Vladimir Putin's unjust war of aggression in Ukraine. I would like to dedicate this award to Navalny, to all political. (laughs) Remains in solitary confinement for what he calls I want to make sure we get his words exactly right. Vladimir Putin's unjust war of aggression in Ukraine. I would like to dedicate this award to Navalny, to all political prisoners around the world. Alexei, the world has not forgotten your vital message to us all. We cannot, we must not be
2: afraid to oppose dictators and authoritarianism wherever it rears its head.
0: Alex Smythe will have a bit more on the Oscars, or should I say our personal Oscars, later in the roundtable chat. But coming up after the break, I have the regional news update and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
3: I'm Arthur Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air.